0: Hello everyone and welcome. Today I am joined by Diego Della Torre. Diego, thank you so much for being here.
1: Yeah, Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you.
0: I'd like to begin by discussing your political socialization. So when you were growing up, going pretty far back, did you talk about politics with family, at school, or with friends?
1: Uh, you know, it was... My political socialization has definitely been weird in the sense that both my parents are, are immigrants. So they weren't necessarily hyper tuned into the political conversation here. Like I was instilled like the, the value and importance of voting from a young age. But as for politics themselves, I didn't really mm-hmm. discuss politics at all. My earliest political memory is probably like sitting down in fourth grade where we watched uh, Obama's inauguration and everyone was like, this is a historic moment. Like the first black person to be present. And that was kind of just where my political socialization was. It definitely yeah. went until much later where I started talking politics mainly with, with friends at school, not so much with family. Um, and it was very much like you would expect middle, middle schoolers to talk about policy, which was a like a very, very bare surface level. Um, basically anything from, from my point of view was like everything that politics encompassed was like the Democratic party. And that was kind of it. Um, I didn't really dig into issues. I didn't really, I just kind of regurgitated talking points that I had picked up, you know, um, online. Tumblr was <laughs> very active though, during those years. So I was kind of walking around kind of spewing that without much critical thought. Um, but I guess it wasn't like my political decision has definitely focused more around conversations with mm-hmm. friends more so than with family. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. So now I'd like to move on to how the people around you, maybe your family members, teachers, or friends spoke about the government. So more positively or more negatively.
1: You know, I have to to say, I think I'm like, generally, as far as I remember, it was a positive talk about the government. Like I didn't really start talking about politics and government up until like high school. I think that was when I started really becoming aware of everything. Um, And I had a government teacher and an ethics teacher who Mm -hmm. kind of really pushed along the path of like what government could be. Instead of what it is. And so I think that was the first time I really had interacted with someone at a positive, or not necessarily the first time I interacted with someone that had a positive view of the government, but at the, the time that, like, the first time I remember consciously talking about government and policy and the potential for change, not necessarily just so much as, like, this is what it is, but rather this is what it could be. Um, it wasn't until much later, I had um, my, senior, mm-hmm. my junior and senior year of high school, I had a, an anarchist teacher, which was very different, <laughs> yeah. So he definitely was not a huge fan of the government, um, and it definitely it, it opened. Yeah. My, he was an oh, anarcho-capitalist, um, and I don't know I necessarily agree with that completely. But in terms of the, the anarchist part of it, it definitely I think opened my eyes a lot to mm-hmm. also the pitfalls of government, um, where it fell through. Like it, it, especially because that class that I took focused a lot on um, like U.S. foreign policy during the fifties and sixties, during the, like the height of the. Um, so kind of seeing that and seeing where government could go, where when pushed to like an ideological mm-hmm. extreme, that was not necessarily founded on helping the people, but rather furthering their own agenda, was kind of like a a moment of reflection for me, and definitely helped shape my views. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I did not result as an anarcho-capitalist, I will say, <laughs> did make me question views of of the government, um, as an institution. Um, and I mean, I I still think. I hold the generally mm-hmm. favorable view of the government, um, depending on the situation. Like there, there are a lot of pitfalls mm-hmm. that I think the government has not addressed, and like does not, ad- uh, had the, has the power to, but does not to for mm-hmm. you know myriad of reasons. But all in all, I, I still see the government as a force for good.
0: Great. So my next question might be related to your high school teacher, but I'm curious if you have a specific memory of when you first came into contact with the word capitalism and what the context was. And as a second part, what do you associate with the word capitalism today?
1: I mean, the first conscious memory I have of like defining economic systems was in elementary school. Granted, those weren't necessarily super great definitions. I think they're super narrow. It was basically. Capital, the, the the way that was taught in school is like capitalism is the best way and then communism is when the state does everything for you and you don't have a choice and then authoritarianism is like when you know the government just absolutely controls every single part of it which like didn't really distinguish like anything it was very much kind of like a pro-capitalist agenda I think that what I associate with the word capitalism right now yeah I think it to some extent is free free enterprise but also um, just inequality what we see right now in the US I definitely see is just like complete free market capitalism and i obviously just like failures and and inequality and like just not not so much of a positive association with it um i mean recognizing still that like you know i think to some extent it can be brought under control but realizing we definitely need to modify our own economic system as well
0: Mm -hmm. now let's discuss more particularly your views at georgetown So have there been any experiences maybe in the classroom or with your peers or with the Georgetown Bipartisan Coalition where you've really maybe changed or affirmed your perspective?
1: In Georgetown, so I think it really gave me the opportunity, not necessarily in the classrooms, but in discussions with Uh other students and my classmates, um, meeting a better sense of where i stood on issues and so while it wasn't necessarily like one specific class that i remember being like this is it like i have found the solution to like or the Mm. my political identity in this class there were definitely um discussions that i would have with friends that were mainly about like okay Mm. well how about this and then realizing that like my views in high school where i might have agreed with my friends um Like now I found myself being like, no, Mm -hmm. we need to, we need to push further. Like that's, that's not enough. And so, yeah, it was definitely like a, a journey that would not have been accomplished. I think a lot of dialogue that I built with my classmates, um, but also with just my own kind of research and Mm -hmm. thinking about the issues and listening, obviously, like different media sources and like pushing myself to explore more outside of my regular political comfort zone.
0: Now I'd like to talk a little more specifically about how you view the government's role in relation to its citizens, so by discussing a few contemporary examples. First, we have New Zealand, and I know you got a chance to look at an article about its 2019 budget, which prioritized the, quote, well-being of its citizens rather than traditional um, goals like economic growth or productivity. And my question about this is, is this a desirable budgetary model for the U.S.? and if it is desirable is it attainable
1: um yes to both <laughs> um definitely yes to both i mean <laughs> desirable because at the end of the day the state and the government um is there to provide for the people and we that make it up like we we make up the government we make up the the government's income like with through our taxes and everything that we pay for so I think that, you know, the role of government is definitely to help the well-being of its citizens. And I know everyone kind of has a different definition of that. But one thing that New Zealand is doing, like focusing on that mental health, focusing on reducing child poverty and specifically on like the the um, minority people in, in New Zealand. They have been historically just like treated terribly by the New Zealand government, even just like when colonization started of New Zealand. And, you know, they had a a treaty that was supposed to, you know, Grant them certain rights, but even now, the mayor people are still have like unequal access to housing education. It's all around like they treat them like second class citizens. Um, in which like we have situations like that too, not just with with Native Americans here who have some of the highest rates of poverty and some of like the highest rates for um murders without being saw sol- unsolved murders. Um, and just like the terrible, like general have like really terrible living conditions, and that is the fault of our own government or our, our own policies that we've pursued. Um, so. Yes, the government, I think, should be focusing more on the well-being of its citizens rather than productivity and economic growth. Um, by far, you know, one of my favorite speeches, um, in this past couple of years was Greta Thunberg's speech in front of the UN where she rallied against countries like uh, the, the importance of setting sustainable, um, a, a sustainable future in terms of, uh, the environment while also kind of chastising that the goal of states to be, you know, to have their, um, endless, endless economic growth, and like I, I recognize that when the economy is important because then you have to bring people in. But if the economy is growing and that money is being hoarded at the top with a lot of people marginalized and left aside, then that really does no good to anyone because then you have people that are working day and night forever and seeing none of the benefits or very little of the benefits. Where the government could very easily step in and be like, you know what, let's let's pass policies that will actually help you and and move some of that wealth from, you know, from the investment, from from the top 0.1% to, like, everyone else make sure that not necessarily do you have an, uh, an, um, an equality of outcome, but so that you at least have equality of opportunity where you build an equitable system that people are then, you know, have, yeah. for example, like, for education, free healthcare. Like, these are things that we can do and that we should do because at the end of the day, the country, you know, the, if you give people... That well-being and that safety that they need to explore. You don't know like that's gonna have ultimately positive, you know, effects. People that might be scared to leave their job to start their own small business because they rely on their employer's health insurance. So they don't want to push anything, or visionaries that don't have the resources, that don't have the education to to make some of the make some like life-altering decisions. So we, we don't know on that potential that we're missing out on because we're not investing in these communities. So the moment that we invest in in the communities, and then we promote the well-being of our citizens to make sure that they're kind of they have that safety net. Um, I think it, it, the, I, I think it would help even the economy, and not just the well-being. Like, you would see productivity and economic growth, and you would see it be distributed a little bit more equitably than it is being like distributed right now.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you brought up a safety net because it's actually what my next question is exactly about. Do you view the US's safety net through programs like SNAP or temporary assistance for needy families or Medicaid do you view this safety net as working as it should be
1: Um no I think that there needs to be uh, serious serious reforms I I think they're working to some extent but I also think that they place a lot of limitations on family like and they to some extent they dehumanize um those like that are lower income like for example I think you know you are restricted to what kind of foodstuffs you can buy under snap. Um, You know, you, you are restricted to certain things and that's it, which, you know, people that are lower income also want junk food. Like they're, they're human. We we necessarily push them to be like, no, you can only have these four or five different kinds of food. Oh, you want like a soda? Well, that's too bad. You should earn more money to to buy a soda. I think that's really kind of like not super great. I also think, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm, this is where like my knowledge, my, I guess area specialty is more immigration than, than welfare policy. But I, I as far as I think um, there are um, some of these things are means tested. And I think the like, early this year, late last year, the Trump administration was trying to pass a law that made some of these like um, programs, or at least the, the, the snap um, they made them so that you have to be drug tested and like for them in order to qualify Which I think, you know, means testing aid isn't necessarily the best, the best way to do it. I think that, you know, everyone does deserve a chance to thrive, whether or not, like, you have the means to do it. So means testing, like, snap isn't necessarily the best, um, because people shouldn't necessarily have to prove that they're in need in order to get food. (laughs) Um, but also in terms of the, uh, Medicare and Medicaid, I mean, to some extent, is definitely working. Um, people that are on those plans enjoy right. them. They're widely popular. Um, people like politicians right now do not consider touching Medicare or Medicaid um, because it's widely popular. Uh, that being said, I that's where I think also it should be expanded to include everyone in it. Uh, I mean, right now, especially right now during the pandemic, we've, we're seeing the effects of having um, our health insurance tied to employment mainly, where you have So many millions of Americans that have lost their employment and have therefore lost their health insurance and not just their own health insurance, but sometimes their families are on their, uh, their employer's plan. So that their wives and their children that are now just kind of being left on the side. And so that's definitely something that for sure is not working. Um, and well, that's more of a broader healthcare system. The, the two Medicare and Medicaid, I, I think are working, but they should be more expanded to include everyone to make sure that we have a more kind of equitable system where your you know ability to get health insurance or to receive life-saving medication isn't necessarily dependent on how much you make because at the end of the day if you need medicine to live you are what you're willing to pay like whatever right like your life worth however much it it, it is right how much you make so when you have instances where you know companies are charging 250 dollars for a vial of insulin where some people require six vials of insulin a month right? That's, that's like 15, um, quick math, uh yeah, like $1,500 yeah. a month, and which might be fine for someone, you know, making 150, $200,000 a year, but it's not fine for those that aren't. And even those that are making more money shouldn't have to, you know, pay to be able to live. That should be a guaranteed right, right? So we have this, uh, we have the ability to do so, have the money to do so. America is one of the richest countries in the history of the world. It's just a matter of how we prioritize our spending that's the problem.
0: Great. Thank you so much. And it's funny you again kind of hit exactly on the head what my next question is about, because I think it's so interesting that there's such a big difference between how people view housing and healthcare. So some people view them as commodities, where the free market will just increase access to them, and that's the best way to go. And some people view them as human rights and something that the government should be providing for everyone. And I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit more about your position on that debate.
1: Yeah, so um, for sure, I think they're all rights. I mean, you look at mental health care needs, and one of the things that, that we absolutely need in order to, before we even start thinking about like you know longer term is like housing, shelter, clothing. Food, um, so these things are absolutely, you know, human human rights. Everyone has a right to housing. And one of, uh, I think, one of my pet peeves when it comes to like talking about housing as a human right or like, you know, um, uh, healthcare as a human right, the human response is like, oh, well, you know, you don't have a right to anyone's labor. When it's like, well, you you don't have a right to anyone's labor. Like, yeah, like, but we're paying people. Like, it's not we're not just gonna force doctors to work without yeah. pay and then be like, okay, thanks. Um, but we're, we're going to pay them for their labor. Like they're, they're not going to become slaves or like cogs in a system where they're going to all of a sudden just go unpaid um, in terms of healthcare anyway. Like and when, when it comes to, you know, housing, it really, so obviously the free market can't, can't guarantee housing. Like we, if we wanted to, there are enough empty houses here in the U S for, for us to house every single unhoused person in the country. So when you think that's just like, and, and there's, insane amount of opportunity there but again because they're controlled by private entities that want to turn a profit on them then they're not going to see them right and so the, the problem there then becomes well what can we do about it and the government absolutely can and should kind of guarantee housing for everyone um and that's not to say like everyone should get like a you know a mega mansion with three pools and like a backyard and all this other stuff. But everyone at least should have like a place to sleep at night where they have that they can call their own and they can, you know, we can treat them with dignity. Um, so one of the things we could do is expand the number of public housing that we have built. And, you know, I think one of the laws right now, I was watching a a, a TED talk on, on affordable housing, no you know, passive precisely. And one, one of the federal laws right now that's like prohibits there from there being any, Newer public housing built uh, without kind of demolishing old ones. Like they they're, they set a cap on it, and that was after years and years of lobbying by private businesses to kind of because they realized that private or that public housing was obviously making a dent in the profits. Like you can't necessarily turn a profit if if people are getting houses for free. Um, I think repeating that is the first step in addressing this this kind of crisis, and the second step is actually you know making some of the affordable houses making affordable houses like that's that's really really crucial because you have a lot of people again whose potential is just we we won't know and that's not to say just like we should treat people because like oh we don't know what they might later on but also the fact that we have so many people out in the streets is already a huge policy failure like that is that is a sign that the system we have now is not working and so we definitely can and should kind of guarantee. Housing, it's not going to be like we can treat it as a commodity. If we want, we can have like a mixed system where, or well, once you make enough money, you can kind of move into like a private house or whatever, or whatever you want, you can move wherever you want. But at the very least, if you don't have any money and you currently find yourself down on your luck, as a lot of Americans will, you know, come January first when the rent control, or when the when the eviction moratorium ends, you're going to have a lot of problems. Like we're seeing right now, we're seeing five percent of the American population do lose their housing to be evicted because they can't afford it in the middle of a pandemic so there's definitely steps that we can and should take in order to guarantee housing for everyone
0: Mm -hmm. yeah thank you and with the pandemic of course everything is basically shut down but essential workers are still at the front lines so speaking about our nurses grocery store clerks bus drivers warehouse workers etc and these jobs are often low paid, and additionally, people of color are overrepresented in these jobs. Has this situation changed at all how you view labor in the labor market? And do you think it has or maybe will change how, as a society, we value labor?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely. Um, that's like a lot to address here. <laughs> but I think the first part is. I have to say, is uh, <laughs> it hasn't changed my own personal view on the lay market. I still think that these people that are on the front lines and like, we definitely show how important they are and because they're considered essential, right? These are people that we don't necessarily as a society value so much, right? Like we don't necessarily value everyone that's like in the warehouse. We don't necessarily value grocery store clerks or bus drivers or, you know, plumbers or any sort of like those businesses because we just kind of see them or our society views them as these kinds of, uh, um, like second-class citizens, right, where they're kind of just kind of like there because they don't necessarily have the prestige of the job. Um But I think we definitely should and see and we should see now the value that they provide to our society is just unmatched. Like these are essential workers that have basically made our economy keep on chugging and make sure people have food, make sure people have like, you know, in terms of nurses, have their lives, make sure like the, you know, maintenance workers, make sure that they're, the areas that we go to that we visit for you know whether it be at the hospital or at the um at the grocery store or a restaurant like those maintenance workers are the ones that are making sure that areas are clean that we don't we minimize the risk everywhere we go and so yeah that's definitely something that's super super important and, um i i just i hope that these kind of after the pandemic one of the things that we see is how we treat essential workers has to change like the people are obviously not being paid enough. And like, yeah, people are like, oh, well, you know, you're a grocery store bagger. Like, that's like, you don't require any experience for that job. So we can pay minimum wage, like $7.25 an hour. Um, So it's like, well, sure. That's, that's the minimum wage. And it's like, oh, you know, it doesn't require experience. That's a high school job. But also like, they basically made our economy and our, our country keep running when everything else was kind of like shutting down. We needed to stay at home. So, That kind of labor is definitely uh, undervalued, and I hope that that perspective changes. I don't, being honest, I don't know that it will, um, but I I have hope that we will recognize essential workers, frontline workers, um, as important parts of our economy and compensate them as such.
0: Mm. And now moving pretty quickly to some questions about how your perspective is shaping your future goals, as someone who's already politically active, obviously with Georgetown Bipartisan Coalition, do you plan on going into government or politics in the future?
1: Uh yeah, for sure. One of my goals is to work in this policy politics world in order to push for change.
0: Awesome. Thank you. And as a quick follow-up, how effective do you view government as an avenue for affecting social change compared to being like an activist or working in a nonprofit, for example?
1: Um, I think it depends, like, like every, every other thing, <laughs> um, in this, yeah. I definitely think it depends. I think being in government does give you an avenue to enacting like activists can push for change and we should like push for change and, you know, we should hold people accountable. But at the end of the day, like it's the people that are like, you know, either in city council or, you know, in Congress or your state Congress or your state Senate, like it's the people that, that were elected that hold the ultimate power of like passing a law or making a bill. That's not to say like that's not to decredit, decredit like the work of activists. Like activists have pushed politicians to do really, really great things. Um, and their work is yeah. absolutely necessary. And you can have some cases where, where you're both, I mean, thinking about the, the people that I applied to work for. I mean, someone like, um, Cori Bush, who was, you know, a Black Lives Matter organizer and spent kind of her career, um, you know, as a nurse and also for the men, but also like, as an activist, pushing for that change and then realizing, the, like, enough is enough and running for Congress, you know, still hold on to that activist part but realizing, like, we can do more. How do we do more? It's, 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 a, it's a complex situation where I think you need both, but in the government, back to, like, the original question is, like, why it depends. I also think in the government it's very easy to go and follow the status quo and it's very hard to enact change at a broader level. So you are like when you work as a entrepreneur, as a for example, like you are only one member um, of the House yeah. and you need mm-hmm. way more before you can even pass the bill to so say like what you need support in the Senate. Um, so it become it can become very easy to like have your voice drowned out or to become kind of more co-opted by the status quo and or for the status quo to even like start adopting, you know, terms and then kind of weaponizing them um, to the antithesis to change, um, is really, is really hard. Um, so I really do think it depends a lot on the person and what they see. Like I think government and people like working in government can definitely be a very strong avenue for change and for change people's minds and for change like passing laws and like making change. But that's where I think the work of activists does come in handy where it's like they make sure that you are staying on that course and not kind of being broken Sort of say by the system and like being uh, to like you know weaponized to enter the status quo. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. And just one more question because I'm curious. I know your policy area of interest is economic cooperation with the U.S.'s allies and immigration, and I'm wondering where did this interest come from?
1: Um, no, it's definitely I think personal. Uh, I mean, growing up in El Paso, Texas, like right on the border, um, so a lot of my family still in Coahuila on the other side. My, both my parents work in Mexico. It's like a maybe like a, a thirty minute commute from like from the uh, the border bridge uh, to the border bridge of my house. Um, so I also like have family that has been through the immigration system and like some like some houses in my family that are mixed uh, mixed status. And so seeing the effects of that policy, like immigration policy, firsthand and how you know as much as administrations have changed, there's still kind of the sense that we need to militarize our borders. Like there's even, even on, on the Dem side, there's a lot of talk about securing our borders and making sure that the, you know, border patrol are is like, well, um, like well-equipped to handle migrants and stuff like that. And it's just, that's definitely been a very, like a very radicalizing issue for me personally, because um, I have seen the effects of what a militarized border patrol does mm-hmm. and what a militarized border does. Um, and I think it all really much came to ahead in 2018 where el paso we became kind of the ground zero for a lot of trump's immigration policies so like family separation that was started here um the um the just immediate barring the return to mexico that was also started here you know so you have these problems like programs that were kind of initiated to ultimately like yeah, be deterrence by causing migrants a lot of pain so you were pushing people away for the sake of being like, well, we don't, we don't want you here. So we're going to make the cruelty kind of the point of our policies. And as I say, Trump is, uh, is the only one that's done it. This is, this has happened in administration, like in administration, uh, through administration, through administration, where there has been like a, a very, sometimes Trump was, was a sudden shift, but there has been a very slow shift towards border militarization mm-hmm. for a long time now. And it's been tied to, you know, Im- immigration is, and immigrants have definitely just been criminalized. There's a, there's a, um, a word called uh, immigration, where it's kind of the idea that immigrants are kind of treated as criminals and you have these two ideas kind of start merging together where every immigrant, regardless of whether they're here asking for asylum, regardless if they're here legally, regardless if they're here like undocumented, um, they're kind of treated as criminals or like second class citizens. Like they don't belong here. Um, so that, been, like, once I came to Georgetown, I started doing more of like, I guess, academic deep dives into the subject. You know, the first class I took um, on the issue was was one on, on global child migration, where I was able to see how the global refugee and migration regimes um, treat children abroad and domestically. And, and being able to draw those comparisons was like, really, why? Uh, eye, eye-opening for me. Um, and then just kind of continuing on that path, that has definitely been kind of where... Um, my area of interest has been and in terms of foreign policy. That was also just more personal experience growing up on the border. There's a lot of, there's a lot of talk that kind of get lost lost in translation where the policies that are bat- passed both in DC and Mexico City don't necessarily consider the effects that it has on border communities themselves. Um, so that has definitely been a really important issue for me. Like that kind of where it came from. And so seeing now that you can have like the, the, the literature on immigration as a foreign policy objective is relatively new. It's like, it's like 15 years that it's really started taking off. So I saw that as a really great opportunity for me to study kind of those two things more, more in depth Um, and realizing that like, you can't necessarily treat like the the migration that we have now, like global migration that we have now that talking about that economic cooperation between countries and whether, and between uh, or inside of an own country, because all these issues are ultimately like very, very intimately
0: linked. Thank you for sharing that. And that concludes our interview. Thank you so, so much, Diego, for being here. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, no, for any time, uh, thanks for having me on. This was really great.